I will just kind of just let everyone sit where they are, I guess. I know it does seem a little bit odd. Right now I've got what? Yeah, like a dozen people and we're all spread out, but that's okay. We will make it work. Let me um, pray for us and then we will uh, get going. So excited about this study. Uh, Lord God, we pray for grace and we pray for wisdom when we come to the subject of peacemaking and uh, presuppositions. We um, realize how difficult this is and how easy in theory things like forgiveness um, or repentance uh, can be. Um, but we understand that in practice, it just is very, very difficult. And so over the course of the next, uh, whatever it is, 12 weeks or so, we pray um, that this would be a beneficial time, that, that this could be as practical as it gets in terms of affecting some of the things in our lives, our relationships, our interactions with our friends, and ultimately that our church would be a better place for it. So be with us, we ask in Jesus' name, please. Amen. Okay. So raise your hand. Actually, I don't need a raise of hands. I can look around and answer the question. The candles were there, but they probably don't even remember it because how old are you now? 14, yeah, you're probably nine years old then. So you're, you were the only person who probably remembers the first peacemaking. You were here when we did the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we did a series like, what, five years ago now, four years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So four or five years ago now, we did a series on peacemaking. Um, Maybe John was there. Were you there for that? Okay. Uh, everyone else. Yeah, at the Embassy Center? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Maybe that was it. Yes, yes, you are always responsible for your 1%. We will revisit that part. Yes, that's a difficult one, but you're always... So then, so you mean it's better to ask forgiveness and say, I'm sorry, than just say, I'm sorry? Yeah, 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 we'll talk about that. Yeah, when you say, I'm sorry... Yeah, you don't leave the ball in their court. You just drop the mic. Yeah, we'll talk about the difference between I'm sorry and will you please forgive me. Um, so, but why, Why? Uh, let's talk about this. Peacemaking and presupposition. So there's going to be two halves of the class. One is going to be uh, practical uh, peacemaking and conflict resolution. Like what does good repentance look like? What does good forgiveness look like? How do I know when to overlook an offense? Right? I mean, sometimes that's hard. We should be overlooking quite a few offenses, I would say. But how do we know which ones to overlook? Which ones uh, to not overlook? How do you know when you've seen a good example of peacemaking versus a bad one? Sometimes it's hard. If someone just raises their voice, does it mean they're out of line? Does everyone have to always talk like this? Like Jesus was someone who just always pet lambs and just, he was always this calm. Just, just come to me. Come to me. Or, or, or what about the times where Jesus is very direct? He's frustrated with his own disciples because they don't understand. Maybe in some cases, you know, he's turning over tables and that. Would we have looked in and said, Jesus needs to take a peacemaking class or something? I'm not sure. So how do we know uh, How do we know what to even identify as good peacemaking? And then the second half, we are going to look, we're taking a dip in philosophy. Philosophy is not a big, scary word. Philosophy is not just for atheists who are trying to make you feel stupid for being a Christian, like the stereotype often is. 
philosophy is not just for that college freshman who took one class and knows just enough to be dangerous because he thinks he's smarter than everybody. Um, philosophy is that, yes, sir. Yeah, good. We'll talk more about amends, too. Really good. (laughs) Certainly glad to hear that. Um, So we are going to take some of the tools of philosophy, and we're going to ask questions like this. Um, How much justification for something? How much evidence? How much um, warrant do I need to really believe something or, or to claim that I know something? Okay. Um, when can the way I feel about something justify an action versus when it can't? Do feelings ever rationally justify action or is it only reasons? We'll talk about that. In other words, we're going to dip into uh, some of the uh, some epistemology, um, some basic philosophy to bring it to bring us into the discussion and say, okay, how does this help with peacemaking? But also, how does this help in disagreement in a very polarized? culture, because what we're going to find is disagreement doesn't create conflict. It's disagreement with some other things underneath. You can disagree with people all day and smile and, you know, and enjoy the barbecue together. It's not disagreement itself that creates conflict. It's disagreement with some other ingredients thrown in. So we're going to take some of those tools and look at, okay, how can we think better about uh, what, what should I be expecting someone to say or not say? Um, what is their background worldview or presuppositions? How, how can I put myself in their position and, and, uh, and, and try to be a little bit more winsome in the way I engage folks with whom I disagree. So that'll be the second half. All right, but let's start with this. Why study this? Why study peacemaking? I mean, there's all these other classes you go to, and some people just defaulted into this class because they didn't sign up for anything, and that's okay too. But you want to justify why we're doing this. And um, conflict is all around us, if you haven't noticed. Hey, Janetta, conflict is all around us. Robbie, my good man, look at you. Uh, conflict is all around us. You don't have to go searching for conflict, okay? It will find you, especially now. This is a, I, I can't remember a time, um, and people who are twice my age I've talked to can't remember a time where things have been more, more, more polarized um, and that there has been such a bifurcation in our country, left and right especially, um, where the left has got a lot more left and the right in many cases got a lot more right and everyone, and, and the tension, you can just cut cut it with a knife, um, it will find you. And as I thought about just this whole series, I was thinking, what is, what on earth has gone on over these past two years? We had a polarizing uh, election cycle. We had a a, a pandemic. We had, um, we had uh, polarizing uh, racial justice issues as well to address. Um, But but I was just thinking about it. I was like, I don't really think that a lot of those things are the underlying problem. Because, again, a disagreement doesn't necessarily mean uh, that there's going to be conflict. Not necessarily. Okay, You could say, well, probabilistically, yeah, because people – fair enough. But I don't think disagreement leads to conflict necessarily. Um, I think two things explain what has largely been going on in the church even in the last couple of years. The inability to resolve conflict once it's there, and unwillingness to live in disagreement. It's just better to separate, okay? If I can't, so here we are, we're all going through life together, and then someone finds out that, 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 this, that their person, their, their friend that they love, they've been loving for years, they found out they were going to vote for this candidate. <gasps> I guess we were further apart than I thought. We need to go our separate ways. 
well, this church is going to, well, we're going to have this certain policy about, you know, wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. It's like, it's better to just, it's better to just leave than to just sit and live with that kind of disagreement. And we had some folks who did. Um, inability to resolve conflict when it's there, and then an unwillingness to live in disagreement. There's this idea that if I don't agree with you on X, Y, or Z, and I don't mean things, um, yeah, I mean things like the examples that I just gave. If, I, if, I, if we disagree, man, this just isn't going to work out. We can't really be friends. We can smile, we can be cordial, but there's not going to be any real relationship. We got to make sure that we think that the structure and the extent and the scope of social injustice is all the same. We need to agree on all those things. We need to agree about who a Christian uh, should vote for. Uh, we, we need to agree about uh, uh, the, the science behind or not behind, whatever the case may be, COVID-19 here, there, and everywhere else. And if we're not on board here, there is this palpable tension between us that's just like, uh, sorry, we just can't, we just can't touch. We can smile and we can kind of respect each other, but we're not going to be in each other's in each other's lives. And of course, when that happens, you're already starting to go out the door of relationship. You're already starting to go out the door of your church. You're already starting to go out the door. Um, it's sad. So I think the underlying problem is not all of the, we've always had things that could potentially uh, trigger responses uh, but these were but these were particularly acute, and they were back to back, and it was kind of like a foundation that had cracks on it, but it never had a ton of weight. And then finally, you put some weight on it, and it's starting it starts to crack, and that's what happened. But I think the cracks were largely because people do not know how to resolve conflict or live with disagreement. So I think it's really important. And I, I promise you, if Stephen and Ben um, were were here, of course they're both teaching classes. They would, I promise you that they would agree with me that, that the inability to resolve conflict and the unwillingness to live in disagreement, as we talk as pastors, as we talk to every other pastor that we talk to, it's the same thing. The, those three things, COVID-19, a polarizing election cycle, and racial justice issues, or, or what that, for good and bad, however you want to chop that up, um, has splintered churches because people can't do these things. So this is not just an abstract pie-in-the-sky thing to teach on. Okay, this is very, very concrete. It doesn't get more practical than this. It doesn't get more practical than resolving conflict, learning how to live in disagreement. Okay. Um, second, the devastating effects of being a poor peacemaker. Um, what are they? Destroyed relationships. Uh, personal bitterness. I don't know how to resolve conflict, so I just sit on it and swallow it whole. And it's it, it, they, and of course you get that old phrase right that that um, bitterness is the poison that you drink waiting for someone else to die. You heard that? Bitterness is the poison you drink while you wait for someone else to die. Oh, I can't stand them. Oh, I can't stand them. Blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, to the detriment of your own soul, because you don't know how to even resolve conflict, you don't know what to do with it, you don't know what how to work with that. You're poisoning yourself. You're poisoning yourself. Um. What about a potential? It has the potential to destroy a career being a poor peacemaker. Um, you have a potential to hurt the witness of the church, and in fact, it has been hurt, unfortunately. And um, it's been hurt in in um, everything from presbyteries to local churches to the Southern Baptist Convention to there has been a lot of really, really bad conflict resolution. 
hurt the witness uh, of the church. So there are devastating effects of being a bad peacemaker. But here's the, here's the challenge, though, the next point. The difficulty of being a good one. So if you're not a good peacemaker, devastation is coming. But guess what? Be encouraged, or maybe not so much. It's really hard, I would say, to be a really good peacemaker. I think it's very difficult. Um, it's way easier to teach through curriculum about best practices about being a peacemaker than to actually do it. Just like anything else, right? Just like anything else. Uh, it's, it's far easier. Um, what, why, or why, or why is being a good peacemaker so difficult? Uh, what about the fear of man? I just, I just fear man. I want people to like me. I do not want people to think I'm one of them. We live in the age of the thems. We're one of those people. I don't want to be a those or a them. I want people to, to, to like me. I don't want to be ostracized. What about love of social ease? It's like, I just hate conflict. Now, by the way, people say I hate conflict. Like, that's great, because what's the opposite? Like, someone who says, like, I love conflict. It's like my spiritual gift, conflict. It's like, that person needs to go, you know, a different church or something, not this one. No, uh, or we can help. But, but uh, yeah, I hope that you don't like conflict. But we all have a, we all drift towards love of ease. We love ease. There's anyone who doesn't just love relational ease. Does anyone prefer relational friction over relational ease? Of course not. It would be stupid. Okay, um, and so, but but our love of ease can make us go, eh, it's gonna, it's gonna let that go. Oh man, maybe we'll just get over it. And I can't stand it. But, but you know, it's not worth rocking the boat. It's not worth rocking the boat. And I've told you that example of the guy who said, I talked about all the water. It's just water under the bridge. And he said, well, one day I decided to follow the river to see where all the, the water ran. He said it was all dammed up at the end. It hadn't gone anywhere. Okay? Love of social ease. And remember, I'm going to say this a lot. In, in conflict resolution, the sin of the zealot is much more e is easier to identify than the sin of the coward. Okay? The sin of the zealot, much more easy to much easier to identify than the sin of the coward. The zealot is loud. Maybe he's using profanity. He's got a bad, he's very passive aggressive. Uh, she's very uh, uh, disrespectful or this and that. Bah, bah, and he's up in his face and bah. Very obvious and identifiable. Sin. But the coward sits there and sometimes just looks wiser because there's a lot more Bible verses to hide behind if you're the coward. Oh, it's, it's, it's wisdom to overlook an offense. Oh, to be slow to speak. Quick to listen, slow to anger. So I'm just, that's just what I'm doing. And uh, sometimes that's great. We're going to talk about how do you know the difference. But certainly the person sitting there calm and poised looking who doesn't say anything, doesn't look as isn't as obviously sinning as the person who's yelling and screaming profanity. Am I right? One is much more easily identifiable than the other. They're both sin. One's just sin on your sleeve and one's sin under the sleeve. Okay? One, one can be more passive-aggressive, or one can just be more passive, not even aggressive, just, I'm just going to sit here. It's not worth it. I probably should say something. I'm just not going to. Um, it's difficult what about difficult circumstantial wisdom calls? Man, sometimes there's a gray area issue or thing that you've witnessed, maybe that you're a part of, and you're sitting there going, what do I do? Like, this is just a difficult, I want to do the right thing, but frankly, in this situation, I don't know what it is. 
it's tough. And that's another thing that makes it d difficult. And then you just have complicated or tough topics to deal with in general. You have an issue of abuse. You have an, uh, uh, an issue of um, dire need that doesn't be, seem to be able to be met, and it's causing all of these conflicts. Uh, the complicated, difficult topic. So it's very difficult to be a good peacemaker, but the but the consequences of being a bad one are devastating. And then there's the difficulty of evaluating peacemaking efforts, like I just said. And here's my little line. Um, oh wait, is this not? Uh, are these out of line here? Unified, blah, 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 blah. What on earth is all this? This is what happens when you. Okay, great. Let's talk about these and not the ones that I have. Um, yeah, so the importance of presuppositions, assumptions, and expectations for peacemaking. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but that's some of the stuff that I started out with saying that we'll talk about in the second half of the class. Um, you come to a conflict assuming that people think certain things about how they put the world together or what they should expect from you in conflict. And one of the reasons is because every we're going to learn this. Everyone learned conflict resolution somewhere from someone doesn't matter what in culture maybe they watch their parents resolve or not resolve any conflict um maybe they learned it from their friends but everyone and if you if you even when you're married you brought some understanding of what it was supposed to look like into your marriage maybe it was good maybe it was bad but you brought some understanding in based off something that you had seen somewhere or that you had practiced in a relationship but then you saw something before that um when you, when you come to someone and you're resolving conflict, they are going to be bringing a bunch of presuppositions about whose move is it supposed to be? What should this even look like? And imagine if you're on two different pages with someone and you think conflict resolution is supposed to be two totally different things. Do you think that's going to go well? Probably not. It's probably not going to go well. You probably won't even agree on what a successful reconciliation looks like. Okay. So that makes it difficult. And then there's the biblical command to be unified and live at peace with one another, if at all possible. So that's just the pastoral version of because the Bible says so. That's why we should be at peace. That, that's why we should try to be unified. We shouldn't be all splintered. Um, I don't know why it didn't make into the notes here, but I have one more point here, which was the difficulty of evaluating peacemaking efforts. And then... I put in my notes the line that I just gave you. The sin of the zealot is more obvious than the sin of the coward. Okay? Always going to be able to identify the yeller and the screamer and the passive-aggressive person and the cold-shoulder person. Very easily, the person who silently sits and does nothing will always be an open question whether they're overlooking something in love and wisdom or whether they're just being a coward. Okay? Fear of man can wear very soft clothes and dress itself up and saying, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to hurt anyone. I, just, I don't want to misstep. I don't want to this and that. It can wear very soft clothes and be very, very sinful. Okay? All right. So let me ask this here. What are we, how are we coming along time-wise? Um, a discussion question here. Let's just briefly, let's see what y'all y'all think. Um, we normally think of conflict as a bad thing. Of course, at one level it is. But let me get a couple answers here. What kind of opportunities do you think conflict provides? You ever thought of it like that? I would suggest that conflict also provides opportunities. What kind of opportunities? What do you think? Okay, talk a little bit more about that. The answer to the people skills. 
Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. So, um, so conflict resolution resolution forces you to either develop or hone in even certain social skills, right? Just kind of yeah, social ground game one hundred and one. Yeah, good. What else? What other opportunities does conflict provide? Would you say? Yeah, Janetta. Okay. Great. In conflict resolution, I get different perspectives. Everyone's got their perspective and then the perspectives they try to see things from, and that's it. But sometimes you get someone that's not in any either one of those categories. It's not your personal perspective, and it's not even one you're aware of. And all of a sudden, you're talking with someone, and you realize, like, oh, they're coming at this from a totally different angle. They've got – they have different things at stake in this conversation. They're believing different things about the facts of this conversation. They're thinking that I've been set up to do this to them in this conversation, and all of a sudden – um, I have a different, I have a totally different perspective, maybe on what they're doing or what they're thinking. And that conflict provides that opportunity if I'm willing to actually listen, right? If I'm waiting to talk or waiting to school somebody or waiting to render someone speechless with my next witty zinger. So everyone goes, oh, I'm not going to be learning anything about a new perspective. Okay. All right, what else? What, what other opportunities does conflict provide, would you say? There's at least one or two more I'm thinking of, and we don't have to go through all of them. But this is important, though, because if you think of opportunity, if you think of conflict as an opportunity to improve, to be better at something, then it's not quite as, um, it might not be quite as painful. Or it might be painful, but more endurable. Yes, sir? Okay. 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 So, so I have an opportunity to process. I have an oper- a conflict. Resol- conflict can give me an opportunity to process things. Um, and may I, maybe I don't even know why I blew up or why I was angry. And it may not be about that issue. This might there might have been ten things that went wrong, and this was the final thing. And it's just ah! it's like oh my goodness, all I did is. You know, put the towel back up on the wrong hanger. It's like, okay, it wasn't about that. That was the the ultimate trigger, but my anger was more deep-seated, and I need to process that. Yeah, really good, really good. Anything else that, that how conflict provides an opportunity? We talked earlier about how it can hurt the witness of the church. It can be the opposite. Yes. Bingo. Yes, and we talk, we're, going to, we're going to talk about having that perspective, uh, bringing that perspective into conflict resolution. You have an opportunity to model grace. You have an opportunity to, mo- to model gentle speech. You have an opportunity to really maybe even surprise somebody by how you interact with them because they are used to someone bringing the hammer. I guarantee it. Or some very awkward version of conflict resolution while someone assures them, oh, I just want to know, you, I love you so much. And, and, and I really do. And then they like butter you up for everything to just be like, hey, I just, I thought, you know, you might not want to do this. It's like, oh my, it's just so dramatic. People don't have the ability to just speak to these things. Um, and, and so uh, it ends up, you end up with egg on your face and then you don't get to, you don't get to image the gospel nearly as well. Forgiveness, truth, wed to, wed to grace. Yeah, so tremendous opportunity to, represent Christ well in conflict resolution. 
Let me just mention two more and we'll move on here. Uh, no, oh, we do. It would be good to talk about this next one. It's good to take this stuff slow. This is just some of this stuff is just so practical and so important. I don't want to rush through it. Um, conflict, I have found, provides me an opportunity to see what my heart clings to that it probably shouldn't. Pride, selfishness, my time, my space, my plan, the way I'm perceived. What does it show? Conflict, in other words, can show me something about my own heart. Conflict can show me something about my own heart. Why does this thing rub me such the wrong way? Or why was I so hurt about fill in the blank? I didn't get invited to this thing. I'm so angry and sad about it. Why though? Why? You're upset because you didn't get invited to this person's baby shower or this whatever. It's like, okay, but why? And you ask a couple whys, you peel the onion in a little bit, and you realize something deeper about yourself than maybe you didn't, maybe you, you did before. Wow, I'm yearning for people's acceptance. I feel alone. I feel lonely. And when I don't get invited to some trivial whatever, it, it feels like rejection, and I feel outside the camp like I'm not wanted. And that's what I that's what I used to feel back when I was a kid or something like that. I mean, I've heard stories like that over and over and over and over. Um Conflict will help you, perhaps most of all, if you're willing to do it well, it will teach you humility. Nothing like a good slice of humble pie, going and asking forgiveness someone that you just can't even, you don't want to at all, um, but it will make you a more humble person, okay? So there are a lot of opportunities in conflict, so it's not just how to you know, avoid being a disaster or something. There are really opportunities here. And if you can think about when you have a conflict, what are my opportunities? That'll change the perspective with which you enter into conflict and disagreement. What are my opportunities here instead of, oh no, do I have to? Can I please go to the verse that says I can skip over this one and I'm, love covers a multitude of sins? Maybe, you maybe can skip to that verse. But after you ask yourself, what are my opportunities here? And then let me just say finally, how can I help someone genuinely? I mean, probably all of us have had been confronted at least once in life where we really appreciated it. Okay? Someone said something to you, gave you a piece of correction, gave you whatever, where you're probably like, you know what? That stung a little bit, but it was kind of like the antiseptic in the wound. It healed. It cleaned a little bit. Like I'm I'm appreciative of that rebuke. Okay? Probably at least we can probably most of us can think of once or twice where at least some of us many more like myself, um, where they've been given correction or negative feedback or whatever, and you're like, oh, you know what? That's right. They were right. So you do have an opportunity to help someone as well. Let me just very briefly uh, ask this question. What are some examples of conflict that don't arise from... Um, yeah, let me just say, what are some examples of tension, maybe conflict, that don't arise from sin at all? What do you think? I've tried to argue that sin is what turn. Uh, yeah, no. So conflict isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, sinful conflict. When it turns sinful, of course it is. But yeah, what are some examples of conflict that don't arise from from sin, at least in any straightforward, obvious way? Okay. So I we have different expectations about what should go on here. All right. Here's the dishwasher. Here's the sink. So what you can do is you can pick it up and put it in the dishwasher, because that's what I'm going to have to come behind you and do, because they're not going to miracle themselves into the dishwasher. 
So you don't care, I do, it creates friction. How clean does the plate have to be before you put it in the dishwasher? Well, it's still got cheese on it. Well, that's what a dishwasher is supposed to do, honey. Okay, put it in. No, you need to rinse it off at least a little bit. Oh, my goodness. You know, um, how far does the trash have to get stamped down before it's ready to go out? Shanti's always saying, it's time for the trash to go. Honey, <laughs> it's not half full. It's not halfway full. Okay, uh, good. What else? Great example. What are some other examples like that that don't necessarily result, uh, um, result from sin in any straightforward sense, but nevertheless create tension and conflict on a regular basis? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. So other people's habits. It could be something like dishes, but give me another example of a habit. Yeah. Okay, so you have people who, uh, yeah, who, to, to this example here, repeats the same thing over and over. So how many times are you going to say this? Can we form a line and everyone say the same thing as a rehearsal for this next comment you're going to make? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, so uh, you might just things that annoy you, right? Things that annoy you. Um, you may have, uh, we, we certainly do in my house, constant tension over like how organized or how clean does the house have to be? And so my wife and I have very different thresholds of how much we care about that. And when you have someone who has a threshold that's way up here and a threshold that's way down here, you're going to have to do some compromising. You're going to have to do some giving in order to make that work. What about someone who is um, in just a constant outdoors person and someone who just prefers to stay in and, and read their books or whatever? Okay, you're going to have tension and conflict. Okay, especially if you're married to that person. What do you want to do? It's Saturday. I want to sit and read my book. I want to go hiking. If you're if you're a if you're a Bama fan, your wife's an Auburn fan, then you get the you have the distinct pleasure of winning most of the games. No, um, certainly, uh, certainly there are a lot of these different uh, conflicts that come up that don't have to do straightforwardly. With sin, and that's important to remember too. Is this conflict happening because um, someone sinned against me, or I sinned against somebody else, or is this just happening because I want to play board games and someone else wants to watch the football game? And we're, we have we have limited time, right? We we, we can't do both, perhaps, and so it's like, let's can we, can we let's not do something where no one's happy, like stare at the wall. Can we just how do we compromise? And we're going to look at good what good compromise can look like, okay? All right, well, let's move on to the anatomy of conflict itself and talk about the wood pile and the gasoline. We're going to use a fire analogy here. Um, and the first here is uh, James, the, 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 the idea that, that sinful conflict, uh, or sin, maybe I say sin in conflict, starts with the heart. Um, starts with the heart, James... 4.1, if I can locate the book of James here. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires are at war within you? Okay? Every day is a battle for your heart. Okay? Galatians chapter 4 confirms this. Let's take a look at Galatians chapter 4 real quick. Because um, these are very important texts for understanding What's going on at the heart of our problems and our sin 
Um, it's not, isn't it Galatians 5? It says Galatians 4, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know why it says Galatians 4. It's Galatians 5. What's it saying here? Oh, I've got them both. Look at that. I just have them both up here. You don't have to turn to them. How about that? But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we learn something interesting, Paul tells us. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It's like, no, no, I want to do good, but I want to do bad too. Like, I want to be gracious, but I want to put someone in their place too. It feels so good to sit somebody down. Okay, so which one? I have this desire, these two desires. I want to look good, but I want to make sure that... Uh, you know, I want to look good before people, but I also want to be, exude the kind of humility I need because I've, maybe I've acted wrong. I have these desires within me that are always looking for opportunities to pop out. Now listen to this quote from Lewis. I've read it a half a dozen times at this church, and I'll read it a half a dozen more times. But I just want you to listen to how he locates, um, the, how he locates the fundamental problem in the heart. Not in my circumstances, not in my not my body, not other people, whatever the case may be. Listen to this. This is one of my favorite Lewis quotes of all time. He says, when I come to my evening prayers and I try to reckon up the sins of the day, nine times out of ten, the most obvious one is some sin against charity. Okay, he was, that is, he was being unkind, something like that. I have sulked or snapped or sneered or snubbed or stormed. And the excuse that immediately springs to mind is that the provocation, what triggered me, that is, was so sudden and unexpected. I was caught off my guard. I, I didn't have time to collect myself and just came out. Now, that may be uh, an extenuating circumstances as regard those particular kinds of acts. They would have been worse if they had been deliberate or premeditated. On the other hand, as he says, surely what someone does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of a man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in the cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the very same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar. But if you go in shouting and noisily, they will have taken cover before you switch the light on. Okay? So when someone has time to prepare themselves, okay, this is about to... Every, so here's the, here's the best example. It's that old Christmas family gathering or Thanksgiving gathering that all you do is wait until it's over. And you wait, and everyone's been to one of these, right? So you're like, oh my goodness, how, when do we have to get there and when can we leave? Okay, all right, we're going to watch the clock. We're going to have a good attitude. All right, I'm going to give myself a pep talk. We're not going to talk about politics. I'm not going to tell my aunt her cornbread's dry. We're just going to just, we're just going to tough this out. And you're able to mentally prepare yourself for what's about to happen. And that's what he's saying here. The rats have a, you got, you got a time to stuff those rats down, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because that's called self-control in some sense, right? Self-control, I'm not going to let my sins spew out. 
However, when you are provoked, just maybe on a whim, you're not, you're not necessarily, you haven't prepared your heart for that kind of conflict. You haven't prepared your heart for what's happening. All of a sudden, what is latent, what has been sitting there just has an opportunity to come out. Okay? Now, just to be clear, to clarify what Lewis is saying, that doesn't mean that this is the best uh, analysis of who you are characteristically as a person, like your reputation. I remember a woman, <laughs> she was her son was wakeboarding behind a boat that we were on. We were all on there together hanging out. Um, his, her son fell. The wakeboard hit his head, sliced his, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't like a, it was just, you know, on the, if you get cut right here, it kind of bleeds a lot. He got about a one-inch slice uh, on his head, and he came up out of the water, and it was like, like blood, it looked terrible, but it was really just, you know, and she started screaming profanity in fear and terror, because her son was in the water, blood all over his face, it looked terrible, um, and certainly she had been known to, 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 you know, I don't know that she was known for having the purest mouth anyways, but my point is she wasn't regularly like that, but it was a good indication of what was deep down if you peeled the onion enough, okay? She was not someone who regularly went around shouting profanity. So that's not what Lewis is saying. In these moments where people are taken off guard and these unexpected things, that's the kind of person they regularly are. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that that's the kind of person that's under the onion, okay? And we all have to do business with that because we all have a sin sinful heart if you, dig, if you pull up enough layers, doesn't matter how much virtue, discipline, self-control you have. If you get enough layers pulled up, there's going to be something there, selfishness or, or, or pride or, or whatever the case may be. Okay, so the wood pile and the gasoline. So we've got this conflict on our hearts, okay? My mom and dad said to do this. I don't want to do this. Which one should I do? I'm supposed to obey my parents. But this is a lame thing they've asked me to do. I can't believe it. What kind of parent would ask me to do this? Do they not know? Okay, Desire in my heart battles within me. What I do with that depends whether I'm going to sin or not. What about the desire-demand transition? Here's how this goes. I, I want this thing. I'd like, you know, this is a really nice thing. I'd like to have this thing. I'd like to do this thing. I'd like to experience this thing, whatever this thing is. Now, after you wait a while, it's, I expect this thing. I expect this thing. I deserve this thing. That's the next step. I'm entitled to this thing, and I can't believe I'm not getting it to I must have this thing. Okay? It's a slow, slow progression. And oftentimes you see it in marriage. I get married, and I want marriage to look like this. It's such a good thing. I have a little white house and a couple of children who sleep through the night all the time when they're little kids, and uh, uh, no one's colicky, and they just it's just great. So I desire this good thing. Uh, I want my husband or my whoever it is to, I guess in this case, we're going with the mom analogy. I would like to stay at home. I'd like my husband to make six figures. Uh, I'd like this and that. Uh, and after I desire this thing for a while, I'm patient, I'm patient. Maybe I start expecting this thing. Hey, it's been long enough. You know, God says he's going to run out of patience one day too in Second Peter. It's like, I'm, I'm kind of done. I, I expect this. I expect this thing um, by now. You know what? Actually, I've, I've, done I've done things pretty well here. I've really soldiered well. I've labored well. I, I feel like I'm the kind of person who deserves this, this thing. Okay? I must have this thing. And I will get it. Time to address it. Okay? The desire-demand transition can be very, very subtle and very slow, but it can end up with someone craving something. Almost like their own idol of the heart there. We'll talk about that in a second. Um. 
And then finally, just the consummate focus on self. I don't think I put this in the, the slides. Um, there is no better practical example of people who are focusing on themselves than going to Disney World. Let me tell you why. Because everyone who has gone out of Disney World has paid an astronomical amount of money uh, to get into this park and stay at these resorts or whatever you do. It's crazy how much it costs. Um, and guess what? When you're there, you don't care if someone else's kid doesn't get to ride the Mickey Mouse ride. I'm not here for anyone else. I didn't pay $185 or however much it costs, probably more than that, I can't remember, to get into this park so that someone else's kid could ride the slinky dog ride. No, no, hurry, get up there, kids. Get in front of those people. You know what? <coughs> I'm feeling disabled today. I think we need to get the wheelchair so we can go up the disabled ramp. I've, I've watched it happen so we can get quicker access because we are here for us. And you know what other people represent at Disney, if you're honest? A threat. They're a threat. Other people are a threat to my hot dogs not being stocked anymore uh, or my half, my crummy pizza being out of stock at the little shop that we're going to go to. And they're the biggest threat to me getting to my ride experience in a timely manner. Other people are threats. We're here for us. We paid a bunch of money. Push your way up. Cut in line. Go have one person stand there and then have your whole crew jump everybody because we're here. We're here for us. There is a consummate focus on your experience there at Disney World because you have paid so much money to be there. You're in a vacation environment. And, of course, there are many, many, much, many, many more mundane examples we just love our ease. We have a schedule. We'd like to keep that. We envisioned ourselves doing X this afternoon. Well, when it's suggested that, no, we're actually going to do Y, it's like, uh, no, actually, I'm doing X. Like, I've been thinking about doing X. We're going to do X. No, we're going to do Y. Oh, what happens? We're going to have a conflict. Well, I'm just focused on, I'm focused on my career. I'm career-oriented. That sounds very virtuous, doesn't it? Maybe. You could just be wanting to climb the corporate ladder of success to build an identity for yourself, too. Okay? What is it? Am I? Oh, maybe I'm focused on myself for the wrong reasons. I feel like I don't make enough money, and I, I feel I feel like I don't have a lot of worth because of that. So I'm focused on myself because I want to make sure I look like a competent person. Focus on self. That could be it. Could be sexually. It could be emotionally. It could be professionally. It could be recreationally. The focus on self doesn't ever selfishness doesn't take days off. Sadly, okay. And because selfishness doesn't take days off, we're going to have a lot of fuel for the fire. So we better be good peacemakers. Um, okay, well, so uh, the next section here, we're going to talk about the spark. So we've got all these things, the wood and the gasoline sitting there. Okay, we've got the battles of the heart. We have the desire to man transition. We have the focus on self. All that tends to be there, but none of that necessarily results in some big, you got to have a spark. you got to have something that goes, you know, that, that ignites the wood pile and the gasoline. So next time we'll come back, we'll talk about the sparks, and then we're going to move through to uh, some unhealthy models of conflict resolution that we probably all have seen or perhaps learned or perhaps practice uh, ourselves, okay? All right, so just to summarize here in the last 30 seconds, I hope this is very, very, very practical. This is supposed to be as practical as it gets. This is something that you could implement talking with your parents or your children when you walk down the hall in just a second, and there's some dispute. There, the, 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 this is something that is supposed to be so practical 
and I'm always wanting to be aware of what kind of opportunities conflict will provide me, and we're going to talk about how to do that over the course of this series. Let's pray. God, we're thankful to be able to consider these things. Help us consider them well. God, this is hard. This is hard. It's so much harder than uh, learning truths about theology. We can just read a book, figure them out, listen to a good preacher. This is, this is just so tough, and we need grace, and we need maturing, and we need development here. We need courage, and uh, we can't do this apart from your spirit, so we pray that you would give it generously. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.